Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday. We have a lot to get to today. Coming up on the program, more of the details in the climate change plan going to Vancouver City Council next week. The plan itself is 371 pages long. Janet Brown, our reporter, has been in the technical briefing today, and she's going to join us a little bit later on in the program to talk more about what was said and some of the highlights of that plan. We are also going to talk about another call for masks to be mandatory in schools. A Surrey Teachers Association official as well as the head of the BC Teachers Federation saying they need a more cohesive plan when it comes to schools and we are seeing the number of exposures on the rise. And Food Runners in Vancouver. It's a volunteer program. We're going to talk about that in the last hour of the show and talk about some of the good work they are doing. We start the show today though in Ottawa, where Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland has been speaking at a global forum. She has been talking about the government and making targeted investments to help the economy recover from the pandemic. And during her speech today, she talked about pandemic recovery, saying that it may require more than was needed after the last recession a decade ago. But she is also warning the spending spree will not last forever. Whether on Bay Street or on Main Street, there are no blank checks and there are no free lunches. Let's bring in Bill Curry, the Ottawa Bureau Chief with the Globe and Mail. Bill, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Hi, Joe. Hi. Uh, What were some of the other highlights as far as we were talking about the uh, measures that have been taken so far when it comes to COVID-19 recovery? But what else uh, did she say in this virtual speech to the Toronto Global Forum? Well, I think to take a step back, the context of this speech is that we're going to have a fiscal update soon. We don't have a date yet, but probably in the next two or three weeks, something like that. And so this is a chance for the finance minister to kind of set expectations. So there weren't any policy announcements or hard numbers in today's speech. But I think the overall impression the minister was trying to leave is that uh, Canadians shouldn't expect a real uh, sharp turn towards uh attacking the deficit or the debt in the short term when this update comes out, that that the, the kind of emergency spending that we've seen over the past few months is going to continue uh, at least for the next next while. And she was making the case that if you were to move too soon, as some uh, are urging her to do, uh, that that would be bad for the economy. So I think it's kind of laying out expectations. Uh, she's also trying to draw um, attention to some of the uh, reports from the International Monetary Fund and others who are saying that in this time when um, borrowing costs are low, it's uh, it's a different scenario than what we might have seen in past decades and that the government can at least afford this uh, kind of spending in the short term. She was comparing this as well to uh, the government of Paul Martin and when uh, bigger decisions or decisions about cutbacks and cuts had to be made. But she, uh, from what I understand and from what I saw of this, uh, she was very quick to say these two scenarios are very different. Yes, definitely. And I think that's in response. We've just been saying in the past month or so, um, some people who were involved in government in that era, so people like uh, John Manley, who was a liberal minister in that uh, government, or uh, Don Drummond, who was a senior public servant in the finance department, have been saying, you know, hey, we need to pay attention here. Remember the lessons from 1990 when we got into the 1990s, when we got into these huge deficits and how challenging it was to get out of it. There was a series of deficits in 95 and 96 that were very painful to Canadians. 
And so people, even within the, the Liberal Party, um, from that period of the morning, Ms. Freeland and, and her colleagues in cabinet to to remember those lessons. And so she directly addressed that in her speech today. And it's been interesting. She said previously that she's been consulting Paul Martin directly for asking him for his thoughts. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting uh, sidebar. But essentially, she's saying that things are very different. Um, borrowing costs are very low um, because interest rates are so low. It's actually one weird thing is even though we're the federal government's piling on this extra debt right now, the borrowing costs and dollar amounts are actually uh, going down. Um, but critics will say that's not going to last forever. And uh, so that's that's the tension. That's where the, the issue is um, between her, her critics and what, what she's pushing back on. Uh, you mentioned the fiscal update as well, but uh, we also know this government has broken a record as far as going the longest period of time without a budget. Uh, has there been any talk of when Canadians might see a budget? No, there's been no talk of a budget. We don't even know when the update will be. And like you said, the last budget was March 2019. Um, we had a the last fiscal update was in December 2019. So that was before the pandemic. All we got in July was a, what they called it a fiscal snapshot. So that just covered one year and wasn't as detailed. Um, I was just talking to Pierre Polyev, the conservative finance critic, who was saying, point out, not only that, the, the finance committee is not sitting regularly because they're having uh, fights over documents with the liberals or filibusters going on. The finance department that Ms. Freeland's in charge of has stopped releasing biweekly updates. They used to provide updates to Parliament in terms of tracking the emergency COVID spending and all the programs and how the estimates have been changing. So the opposition is getting very, very frustrated with the uh, the lack of uh, of information that's coming from the government during these unprecedented t- t- unprecedented times. And, and a budget is the kind of document that you would normally get these spending details, and we have not had one uh, under this government since the election of, the, of fall 2019. And like you said, we don't know when uh, there might be one. Uh, what would you say is the takeaway then as far as Christopher Freeland today talking about the measures that have been taken, the extraordinary measures that have been taken to help Canadians? And she talked about how uh, to cut those off in, in one swoop would be uh, not the right thing to do. But it also seemed like she is saying the whole idea of the no free lunch, that they are going to come to an end. This can't go on for any indefinite period of time. Yeah, I mean, this was a largely rhetorical exercise. It was the, the, the larger message is she's trying to please both sides. Uh, if people are worried that their benefits are going to get cut off too soon, whether you're an individual or a business, she's saying, don't worry, we're, we're, uh, we're going to be there for as long as it takes. Uh, at the same time, she's trying to craft a message to people who are concerned about these huge deficits, saying, don't worry, uh, we're going to deal with that when the time comes. Um the proof will be in the economic update and the budget, though. I mean, these are words, and it's going to take uh, an actual spending plan and whether they stick to it as to how, um, how that argument translates into reality. All right, Bill, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. We have been talking a fair bit about testing, about the number of people in BC getting tested and access to testing. And New Westminster is looking at getting a more local site there in that part of the province. The mayor of New Westminster is joining me on the line now to talk a bit more about that. Jonathan Cote, thank you so much for being with us. No, well, thanks for having me on the show. So as it is right now, is the Burnaby site the closest for residents there? 
Yeah, you know, I think uh, New West is kind of right in the middle. So, you know, I think on a per kilometer basis, uh, the Burnaby site is uh, is probably closest. But there is one in Coquitlam and, and one in Surrey. Um, but they're not on, you know, near those cities, near near the border of New West. Uh, you know, I, and, and Burnaby is, is quite far into Burnaby, closer to Vancouver. And so where would you like or is this are you at the point then at looking at potential sites and then asking for that or where are you with that? Yeah, well, the, the city has been working with uh, with Fraser Health uh, since since the summer months, trying to to find uh, a location that uh, might work locally, uh, because I think uh, both the city and and Fraser Health has identified that uh, a location might be might quite be quite strategic strategic and convenient uh, uh, in in the, in the location. And we we had been focusing and narrowing in on uh, on the parking lot surrounding the, the Canada Games Pool. And unfortunately, this Monday, uh, City Council was was notified that. Uh, you know that that site had run into some some challenges and uh, and would not be moving forward. But I think even more disappointing was was notified that that Fraser House uh, is is kind of stopping their efforts to to find a location that would work in in the city. Uh, do you think people are deterred, or people who would get tested, or maybe should get tested in New Westminster, are they not getting tested because there's not a more convenient site? Yeah, well, you know, I think that definitely could could have a factor, and I think particularly in a city like New Westminster, where where car ownership is is quite a bit less, uh, location does uh, does matter, and I, I think people would be uncomfortable getting onto say public transit to try and to get to some of these uh, locations that are a little bit a little bit farther out. So, uh, really, I think uh, you know from from our perspective, anything that can kind of make it as, as convenient and as easy as possible, uh, particularly for folks that uh, that don't necessarily even have easy access to to a vehicle, uh, it would uh, would definitely be beneficial to ensure as many people are getting tested. Because I, you know from everything we're hearing, the Fraser Health uh, and all the health authorities want uh, want people even with minor cold symptoms to uh, to to make sure that they're getting tested. Uh, do you you think you have more reason for this now or that you'll have a better argument for this as well now that we're seeing 80 percent in the last count it was 80 percent of the new cases in the Fraser Health region? Yeah well you know I think uh, you know this fall we've, we've all been a little bit alarmed uh, with uh, with the 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 case numbers rising, but in particular with uh, with the phrase in the Fraser Health communities and uh, you know I think one of the 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 strongest strategies that's been approached is to, to do as much testing and identify cases early so that they can't spread further. And uh, to me, I think making it more convenient and easier for residents in, in the Fraser Health region uh, to be able to do that uh, will only help this region be able to, to get a better control over it. Uh, so have you heard back from Fraser Health at this point or do you know when you might? Yeah, well, at our council meeting on, on Monday, uh, council did direct our staff to uh, to continue to uh, uh, engage with uh, with Fraser Health, but I, I think Council was very clear. We wanted uh, us to be a little bit more more assertive and, and push push back about uh, Fraser Health uh, basically dropping uh, dropping looking at uh, at New Westminster as a potential testing location. And just to talk about the, the testing itself, when you mentioned too that as far as car ownership in New Westminster isn't isn't huge or, or it's a bit less there because a lot of the sites or some of the sites at least say in Vancouver Coastal are drive through and people seem I think a bit more comfortable in a lot of cases staying in their vehicles getting the test and then then moving on. Do you think that that also kind of holds people back or, or would it work to have a drive through site in New Westminster? 
Yeah, well, you know, I think what my understanding is uh, is a lot of the sites are, are definitely drive through, but they're also designed for for pedestrians that, that may not have access to to a car as as well too. And I think you need to be able to serve serve both of that. Uh, you know, I've I've had family members who have uh, who have been tested and, and gone through the drive through option and and have found the test to be quite convenient and uh, and the setup to to work uh, uh, work well. But we need to make sure that we're accessible to 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 all the people in our communities because uh, you know if if we have even twenty percent of the population that uh, doesn't have easy access there, that's where an outbreak could potentially spread in our communities. Uh, and what about the issue, or is there a conversation being had about the idea of mobile sites? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I think one area, and this was raised at our council meeting um, uh, just on. on Day was uh, particularly with the uh, you know uh, homeless populations and, uh, and and folks in social housing. Clearly, the testing sites might be even more of, of a barrier to be able to uh, to attend. So, how do we actually have the the sites be able to come out, particularly to uh, to uh, to demographics in society that are going to have even more more barriers there? And uh, Fraser Health has definitely been engaged in that conversation, and it does look like they're actively working towards creating some mobile sites, particularly targeted uh, to some of the most vulnerable. Uh, parts of parts of our communities. All right. Uh, Mayor, just before I let you go, uh, shifting gears a little bit, I did want to ask you, because we're going to be talking on the program a bit later today about Vancouver's Climate Action Plan, which takes a look at uh, mobility pricing. It takes a look at things like making the downtown part of the city somewhere that drivers might have to pay once they enter that zone. Uh, looking at Metro Vancouver in a broader picture, and I know you've, you've been on the councils and the TransLink councils, what are your thoughts about those ideas? Yeah, so I, I haven't had a chance to, uh, to to really have a look at what uh, is coming forward from from Vancouver, so I'm not able to to jump into that. Uh, we do know, uh, you know, TransLink uh, a few years ago did uh, did look at regionally a, a study on uh, on mobility pricing. Uh, I think at the time, uh, you know, the mayors uh, identified some some regional equity issues, some some social equity issues that uh, would need to need to be looked at. Uh, you know, I think we all recognize there's challenges with being able to fund transportation. In, in our region, and uh, we are going to have to be looking at, at new tools to make sure that we have the right infrastructure. Um, is mobility the, the right answer for the region in Metro Vancouver? Uh, I think that question remains to, to, uh, to, to be uh, uh, discussed in, in conjunction with the many other uh, different, uh, different options for the region to consider. So I think at, at this point, it's, it's probably premature for uh, particularly the Mayor's Council or, or TransLink to, uh, uh, to, uh, to, to really be saying one way or the other, but it is, it is one potential option that uh, that could be looked in, in the region uh, among others uh, you know I think the reality is all of these funding sources have their their pros but they also have their their cons and uh, and this is something that uh, we're going to have to not only engage in the mayor's council but also in in the communities in Metro Vancouver uh, right when you talk about that report it seems like every time it's brought up it is kind of shelved because there isn't really the appetite do you see maybe that changing yeah, well, you know, I think we we definitely know that there uh, there's been some immediate funding challenges that uh, that we're facing uh, locally here with with Translate because of COVID. But I think even before COVID, we we knew longer term uh, with uh, the shift towards electrical vehicles that some of the traditional funding sources for transportation in the region are are changing, and we're going to have to look at. Uh, 
look at uh, at, at new new tools. Um, having said that, uh, you know, I think uh, whether we're talking about tolls or mobility pricing, uh, these are very contentious issues. And uh, you know, I would say, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of mayors in this region that I, I think would be would be quite opposed there. So uh, I think there's a lot more conversations to to be had. And uh, you know, I'd say in the short term, I don't think there there is the political support both at the local level uh, or the provincial level to uh, to move move something like this ahead in the short term. All right. Mayor Cote, thank you so much. We'll leave it there for today, but appreciate your time. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, A bit later on in this hour, we are going to check in with Janet Brown, our senior reporter here at CKNW. She was in the technical briefing for the City of Vancouver's upcoming Climate Emergency Action Plan. That meeting's not until next week, but getting some of the nuts and the bolts of the plan. I know uh, you've heard some of them. And one of the issues coming out of that is the idea of road pricing, of mobility pricing. So let's bring in Lee Haber. He has done a thesis on mobility pricing and uh, joins us on the line now. Lee, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, So you have written about this and probably studied this more than most other people. What are your thoughts on the idea of of mobility pricing? I I think it's important when we look at mobility pricing uh, to look at that with with the current system, our status quo, Uh, we are already paying a tax in the form of congestion. And that really the goal of mobility pricing is uh, it it should be to make our system fairer and to reduce congestion. And and what I found in my thesis is that if we do mobility pricing properly, everybody benefits. Pedestrians benefit, cyclists benefit, transit users benefit, car drivers also benefit. Um, A lot of the damage happens to be done by freight vehicles. And uh, freight users would also benefit, especially because uh, if we have a comprehensive system, we would be able to effectively reduce congestion. So when you use the the phrase, though, when you say when it's done properly, uh, to me, that's where we really get into the fine print. How do you make sure you're doing it properly? Uh, I, I think the goal behind any policy is to make sure that it's fair and reflects actual use. So the idea is if you drive more, you should pay for the roads more. After all, you are damaging the roads more. Uh, if you have a vehicle that pollutes more, you should be you should pay for that pollution as well. Uh, and to really make sure that the system is fair, it would make sense to uh, charge by distance. Uh, I looked at the city of Vancouver's initial proposal, and they propose a cordon system, uh, which is similar to what is used in London and Stockholm. And while it does reduce congestion entering the core area, it's not particularly fair for people who live near the boundary, as they are charged the same amount as someone who, let's say, drove all the way from the suburbs into downtown. Uh, so really, the fairest system, and this is something that experts agree on, is one that is based on time, distance, and place. So you're charged based on when you drive. It makes more sense that you'd pay a higher price during peak hours rather than the middle of night. Uh, you pay based on distance, how much you drive, and you, you're charged based on place. So uh, if you're driving during on a congested road during a congested time, you should pay more than if you're driving, driving on an empty road or even a rural road uh, that doesn't require the same level of maintenance. 
I'm glad you brought that up because that was something that stuck out to me too, was that if you put a a ring around the city or something like we see in London, uh, to me, that doesn't make sense that the person who lives two blocks from that, if you had to drive into that area for whatever reason, that you would be charged the same as somebody coming from a great distance. Um, When we talk about congested roads, are you talking about a system? Does it work? Does everybody pay all of the time? Or is it like a system, say, in Toronto, where you could take the one freeway and it's probably going to be more congested or you could pay and take the other freeway? Um, So the idea with this system is that, uh, and Singapore is going to be the first, I think, place in the world that's going to implement this, basically it's a transponder-based system. And the idea is that most vehicles would have this transponder in them. And, I mean, it could happen that for most roads, you would pay a small rate, a few cents per kilometer, um, but there could be times, let's say, if you're driving in the middle of the night or driving on a road that's just not busy, that you could essentially pay zero. Um, we need to realize that with our transportation system, uh, that w- the roads that we've built are basically built to accommodate traffic during one very short period of time. And then essentially at other times, they're mostly empty. So if people choose to drive during those empty periods, they could theoretically pay a rate that's close to zero. Hmm. And, and when we talk about this as well, is it? Do, do you think and does your research show that having this pricing then works as a deterrent for people to drive or to, to drive at those times when there is the most congestion? Or are there other ways of doing that in that if you make transit really accessible, if you make it that it goes all the time and is convenient, are people not likely to adapt to that or adopt that without having to be penalized if they drive? I think um, I'm going to kind of like flip that in terms of penalizing. Uh, we need to realize that currently, if you're driving right now, uh, you are in fact being subsidized because uh, the amount that you pay for the roads through your gas tax does not come close to covering the cost of maintaining those roads. Um, we do not have a user pay system right now. So really, the idea of having mobility pricing would be to create a fair system so that, um, let's say you're someone who is... Uh, let's say walks to work or you know, ride your bike or even if you use transit that you are not your property taxes are not subsidizing let's say wasteful behavior i think in terms of like tackling it i think we should both invest in transit as well as having uh pricing um most you know transportation uh policy researchers researchers recommend it it's kind of like if you're let's say you want to lose weight you tackle it from both ends uh, you try to improve your diet as well as just trying to exercise more. And what about the idea of a regional approach? We're talking about this because it's the Vancouver Climate Action Plan. It's a 371-page document that has this as one of the discussion points. But does it work if this is something that Vancouver brings in but isn't supported by the Metro Vancouver and even the Fraser Valley region? I think if Vancouver decided to go it alone, I mean, there would be benefits, let's say, in terms of reducing congestion entering the downtown area. However, if we're actually interested in improving, uh, let's say, reducing congestion across the region and creating a fairer pricing system, this needs to be region-wide. Vancouver is also unique, the region that is. It's unique in that it's got multiple centers. You've got downtown Vancouver, you've got... Uh, Metrotown, you have downtown Richmond, downtown Surrey. Downtown Vancouver is not the only source of congestion. Uh, So to really effectively address congestion, which costs our economy around uh, close to $2 billion each year, 
If we actually want to make a dent in that, we need to have a regional approach. Uh, because if we're talking about, and the whole point of this, it's the climate strategy, it's to reduce emissions. Does it make a difference? I mean, Vancouver is not a huge city in itself, Vancouver proper. There are certainly much bigger cities in Canada and around the world. Um, is this because we're looking at reducing emissions? Because it doesn't seem like even if we took all of these measures in the grand scheme of things, when we're talking about world emissions, it's going to make a dent. I mean, there's the when it comes to let's say, reducing our emissions and fighting climate change. Um, yeah, I mean, people look at Canada's emissions and it's a relatively small percentage. Uh, but there's also the argument that, you know, we should be doing our part uh, to address the problem. And I, I would also say that the benefits of uh, road pricing goes beyond just reducing emissions. Uh, that right now, I mean, the fact is that if you have a system that's based off of car use, it's intrinsically going to favor those who can afford a car versus those who can't afford a car. Um, also, in terms of like the quality of our city, we devote a, lot, a large amount of space in terms of both roads and parking uh, to serving one form of transportation and only really for a short period of time. And we've seen during this COVID crisis that uh, businesses would really benefit if we reallocated some of the space, whether that be street parking or even like roads that are uh, maybe excessively wide uh, towards, let's say, expanded patios or even small shops. All right, uh, Lee, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for making some time for us. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, our next story is about some volunteers that are making a big difference. And it has to do with food that wasn't sold, but instead of going into the landfill, it is finding a new life. And joining me to talk more about what that actually means is Tristan Jagger, the founder of Vancouver Food Runners. Tristan, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So what exactly is Vancouver Food Runners? Yeah, so Vancouver Food Runners um, is a non-for-profit that matches surplus food with charities that need it. But the really interesting part is it's through technology where there is about 525 volunteers on an app that check for those food rescues. And they're the ones that drive the food. So it helps to solve the logistical problem. So food rescues, how does that work? So food rescues, yeah, sorry, I could explain that better there. So so basically, um, once we've made a match between the surplus food, so let's say Cobbs gives us bread, we find a charity that needs it, and we post it on our Vancouver Food Runners app, and then we call those food rescues, and a volunteer can go onto the app and claim that food rescue with the touch of a button, and then drive the food from the charity to the, or sorry, from the food supplier to the charity. And do you need more people then to sign on to, to be part of this? Yeah. Or you- yes, we are. Well, actually, in the last two days, we've had about 200 new volunteers, which is just incredible. I mean, Vancouver is really such a giving city. But, you know, we are really in need of food suppliers. So we're looking for anybody that has surplus food, whether it's a bakery, a restaurant, um, a farm, anything like that. We, we, yeah, we have a lots of charities in need um, of more food, so we can definitely place it for them. And it sounds like uh, such a great way to connect these two when otherwise it sounds like this food would just be going into the garbage. Yeah. So um, actually in British Columbia, about 40% of food is wasted. Um, And so I think that it's just a really neat way that we can get that food to people that need it quickly. And we have all these willing volunteers to 
um, get it there. So, um, yeah, that is the, the biggest uh, push for us right now is food suppliers. How did you get the word out to restaurants and bakeries, to those companies, to let them know that you were out there and these volunteers were ready to come and take any of the food that would otherwise yeah. be tossed away? Yeah, so um, thankfully to um, many different media outlets, we've been able to kind of reach people that way. Also, just with um, marketing materials, our website, com, people can go to. Um, and then word of mouth, you know, restaurants talk to other restaurants and bakeries talk to other bakeries. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how we've been growing. And you might have answered this or you might have said this. Yeah. Was this happening before the pandemic or did this start up because of the pandemic? Yeah, it's pretty much just kind of launched right when the pandemic started. So we had always planned to start this in Vancouver. But um, when the pandemic started and we saw the real need was growing in Vancouver, we just decided to launch a little bit earlier and now it's just taken off. So, um, yeah, I mean, the need for food has grown substantially. We have charity partners that went to feeding, you know, 220 families a week to about 750. Wow. And were there challenges then with the pandemic, especially with uh, distancing and with being able to do that? Yeah, so exactly. So, I mean, we've had to put a lot of um, protocols in place and same with our partners. So, you know, but it is really a safe way to volunteer because you're in your car alone driving and we've asked, Uh, food suppliers to leave the food out front um, because we can tell the exact time that the volunteer would be there and then at the other end when the charity um, receives the food we just leave it out front and um, the charity knows exactly what time we're coming and they just come and grab it so there's actually not any interfacing with anybody but what I will say is that um, I was really blown away with all the food suppliers in Vancouver you know our partners that just when the pandemic hit kind of said you know what I'll just bake an extra 500 loaves of bread today or whatever it might be. So that was another really neat part about it. Oh, yeah. And and to be clear, this isn't food that's expired. This is food that's maybe extra. Extra. Yeah, extra food or maybe it might expire in like three days or something, but we could still use it quickly because what's really neat about this is we can just take very perishable food and transport it fast to the charity. And we don't have a location or um, a facility where we store the food. The whole point is that we just grab it and take it right to the um, the person that needs it, the other charity that needs it. Uh, what has the response been like from the charities? Yeah, I mean, really amazing. We have about 37 charity partners now. Um, and I think what they really appreciate is that we can bring food um, and feed their the people that need it there. And they can use you know, money that they may have allocated to food to other things that they can focus on. So I think that they are, yeah, they're very, very happy with it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is it difficult at all finding volunteers in that? I I get that that it's people that have the time and are able to do this, but it can get expensive too, driving around and spending that much time doing that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, what we're kind of encouraging people is to check the app when, and they can look for a food run that might already be on part of their, their route, you know, if they're driving from the office home from downtown to, I don't know, let's just say Kitsilano or something, they could find and see if there is a food rescue on that route and they could grab it and just take it, you know, on their way. Nice. Uh, do you, are you looking to expanding even uh, the types of foods that are going to be included? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we will take basically any kind of food. I mean, we take pre-made meals now. We take um, meat, dairy, uh, produce, uh, bread, bagels. Um, so, yes, but we, w- we would be open to taking most things for sure. And did, you, did you expect that it would take off this fast? 
Um, no, not really. <laughs> I, I did know that there was such a need in Vancouver. I'm a mom of small, of four little small kids, and um, I just had had seen, you know, little kids standing in the lineup at some of the food banks and stuff, and I just couldn't stomach it. So mm. I just thought of this kind of idea, and I actually licensed this amazing app from somebody from 412 Food Rescue in Pittsburgh, and. Um, and I had no, I, I had, I knew that there was the need was there, but when everyone started kind of responding so well, I, I was just really, you know, proud and amazed that, uh, you know, Vancouverites have come together to kind of solve this problem together. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's amazing in, in itself. Uh, you were a, uh, you're a mom of four young kids during a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. You weren't busy enough as it was, so you had to take on this goal, this challenge yeah. too. Yeah, but you know, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that Vancouver, um, there's a lot of like a lot of social gradient here. You know, there's a lot of rich and poor, but but we are so close together. We're all 15 kilometers apart. So it just didn't make sense that there was so much available and so much people needing it. So by using this app, we can get volunteers to drive it to the right places. And once again, then if somebody is hearing this and they are either a charity interested in, in being a recipient or they are somebody who wants to become a volunteer, what should they do? Um, they can go on to, they can download our app on their iPhone or their Android at, um, and it's called Vancouver Food Runners. They type that in, the app will come right up. Or they can go to our website, www.vancouverfoodrunners.com, and they can um, see all the information there. You can uh, become a food donor or a volunteer Or, or a recipient. If you need food, you can also fill out a form there if you're a charity. All right. Uh, easy for people uh, to get more information. Uh, Tristan, yeah. we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for taking okay. the time and for yeah. doing such great work. Oh, thanks for having me today.